I want to thank Elder Darian and the leaders of the church for a very warm welcome. Uh, as Elder Darian mentioned, our two churches uh, operate in the same presbytery, and we're sister churches. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I love being a Presbyterian. As a Presbyterian, we believe in the connectionalism of the church. We believe that no church should labor on its own uh, independently, but should uh, join hands with other churches for support and accountability. And our two churches are actually linked more than simply by being in the same denomination and same presbytery. Uh, but our church, New Life Irvine, is a church plant, and we're turning five years old. And uh, because of our youth, we don't have a session. We don't have elders who directly oversee us. And so uh, in lieu of a session, our presbytery uh, cobbles together a bunch of pastors and elders to serve as a temporary session for us until we ordain our own elders. And your pastor, Eric, is on that session. So he's intimately aware of what's going on at our church and can I just say that the more time I spend with your pastor, the more of a bromance I have with him. Uh, he is a really good guy uh, who loves the Lord, filled with many wisdom and gifts. And I know that Trinity waited a long time for uh, your pastor. Uh, but I think you'll discover, if you haven't already, that he was definitely worth the wait. And so it's uh, good to be here, and I'm, I'm happy to deliver God's word for you this morning. Believe it or not, uh, this past year in 2016, I turned 40. I know it's hard to believe since I look so much older than 40, um, but for my 40th birthday, my family and extended relatives pulled together some money and bought me my dream guitar, uh, a Taylor guitar for those of you who know the music world. And I still remember unpacking the tailor, taking it out of the case. Um, and what is the first thing I did? I brought it to my piano to tune it. Uh, after tuning the five strings, I strummed it, and it emitted a wonderful, marvelous sound. And for the next couple of weeks, I played my guitar every chance I got, singing and worshiping the Lord with it, just like I used to back in high school and in college. But every time I played my guitar, I must admit something sounded a little bit off. Though the guitar itself sounded beautiful, something just didn't feel right to me. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I just noticed a certain dissonance. Well, the following week, I discovered why it sounded off. My boy's piano teacher talked to me and said, you know what, you really need to get your piano tuned. I'm like, really? And I realized that our piano hadn't been tuned over 10 years. In fact, when the piano tuner came over, he played the piano and says, you know what, one visit is not going to do it. You need two visits by me to get your piano finally in tune. And so suddenly I realized why my guitar was off. It's because I tuned my guitar to a piano that was also off-key. I assumed that it was on-key, but it wasn't. This reminded me of the importance of tuning my guitar to a master key. 
I couldn't help but see many parallels to my experience with life. How many today strive to tune their lives to a correct key to only discover at the end that what they thought was on key was actually off key? How many today in Southern California, in Orange County, believe that so long as they make a certain amount of money, so long as they are married to a certain kind of person, so long as they have a certain kind of body, so long as they drive a certain kind of car or live in a certain kind of zip code or go on certain kind of vacations, that only then will their soul finally be in tune. That if you possess these things, if you experience these things, only then will your soul be able to sing. And how many today actually achieve these goals to only discover at the end that something still sounds off in their lives. Something is missing. How many make the same mistake with their lives as with what I did with my guitar, tuning their lives to a counterfeit key rather than the master key? Well, this morning, we are going to meet two characters who tune their lives to two distinct keys. One believes that this is the proper way to sing. One believes, no, this is the proper way to sing. What we read or read about in Ruth 1, verses 6 through 18, are, are, we're introduced to two characters named Ruth and Orpah. And both of them represent two ways of living, two paths to pursue. But before I dig into our immediate passage, let me back up a little and give you a little background information. Our story begins with a Jewish family, a happy family, a full family led by Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons. We read in the beginning of Ruth that they leave Bethlehem and moved to the Gentile foreign country of Moab. Unfortunately, this is where the wheels fall off of their family. Elimelech, out of nowhere, suddenly dies. But it gets much worse for Naomi. A little bit later, not only does her husband die, but both of her sons die, leaving behind their wives, Ruth and Orpah. And so at the beginning of the story, Naomi is full with a husband and two sons, but now she has no husband, she has no sons, and she's left with two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law. As you can see, many argue Naomi is is the female counterpart of Job. She goes from fullness to emptiness. It was widely known in her day that there was no more destitute position to be in than to be a fatherless, husbandless, sonless widow. And that's where we pick up with our narrative. And it is at this point where her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, face a fork in the road. They need to make a decision with their future. On one hand, there is life in Moab, which is where they grew up, On the other hand, they can follow Naomi to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, which is where Naomi grew up. Two paths face face them, Bethlehem or Moab. What will they do? Well, Naomi makes it clear what she feels 
her daughters-in-law should do. She says very sternly in verse 8, go, return each of you to her mother's house. For Naomi, it's clear, you are from Moab, and as a result, you need to go back to Moab. And to show how serious she is about this, she follows up her command by saying, quote, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. This phrase that she uses in Hebrew is a stock formula. It was a a formal expression of severing a relationship. She's doing more than simply saying goodbye and God bless you. But what she's she's saying to her daughters-in-law is, you've done your duty. Uh, All ties and obligations you have to me have been fulfilled. I release you as my daughters-in-law. Go live your life. Live with a clean conscience. No longer worry about me. And then Naomi explains why she believes they should return to Moab. In verse 9, she says, quote, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Here, Naomi lays out her cards and says, This is the reason why you need to go back to Moab. It's because in Moab, you will find rest. That word rest is pregnant with meaning in Hebrew. It's pronounced menaka. And uh, it literally means, menaka means resting place. And it's a word that's often used uh, to describe the promised land of Israel. And so I want you to imagine you being an Israelite wandering in the desert for 40 years, being told that one day we will reach the land flowing with milk and honey. One day we will enter menaka. My family and I, we like to camp on occasion. We enjoy it, and we'll go for a day or two. But I must confess, after a day or two, I've had enough, and I can't wait to go home, right? Well, imagine if you're camping for 40 years, living in a tent, living off of manna that comes from the sky. Your longing for Manaka increases. And so Manaka for the Israelite, represented a place of relief security, permanence, belonging, or to borrow from my analogy, it's the place where their soul will finally be in tune. Now, why does Naomi believe that rest will be found in Moab, not in Bethlehem? Well, she gives us two reasons. One, my daughters-in-law, your best chances of getting remarried are in Moab. You guys are Moab, uh, Moabite women, and so the best chance for you to find a man is to get married to a Moabite man. You are both still young and eligible for remarriage, and so it's a no-brainer. Don't follow me to Bethlehem, because believe me, my people, the Jews, look down on people like you. Stay in Moab. And then she gives a second reason. Not only are your best chances to get remarried in Moab, but your families are still in Moab. Your parents are still alive, and they'd be happy to accept you back in. And there you can find the financial security and protection you would have and not have if you were with me. Because you see, if you follow me to Bethlehem, 
please know that I am going to be a beggar. I am a widow without any sons, without a father. I am going to be living my life begging and living at the mercies of other people's charity. And so if you want financial security, go back to Moab. And how many of us would give the same counsel if we were in Naomi's shoes? You want to live a full life? You want to be happy? Then you need to get married and you need to find a good job. Not much has changed since Ruth's day until now. So the big question is, what do her daughters-in-law do? Which road are they going to choose? Well, Orpah, she does what 99% of people would do. She goes back to Moab. Wives, how many of you, if your husband tragically passed away, would decide to go live with your mother-in-law rather than live with your parents? I don't know if many, if any of you would do that. So she returns to her family in Moab. We can't fault her logic. We can't blame her for her decision. The road to Israel is a road that leads to poverty. It's a road to nowhere. She'd be a stranger living in a strange land. The road to Moab, however, is full of earthly hope. There's her family and the hopes of remarriage. The opportunities are endless. And so Orpah makes the sensible choice. She goes where she believes she will find rest. And she walks right off the pages of the Bible, never to be heard from again. But how about Ruth? What does she do? The end of verse 14 blows us away. It reads, but Ruth clung to her, meaning Naomi. Ruth does the unexpected. She does the unpredictable. She stays with Naomi and chooses Bethlehem. In fact, the Hebrew tells us that she clings to Naomi. That word cling is the same word found in Genesis 2 when God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And to cement and fortify her resolve, she caps off her decision with one of the most sublime expressions of loyalty and love found in all of Scripture. It's an expression that was found on the, the cover of uh, me and Helen's wedding program when we got married. In verses 16 and 17, she states, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything, but death parts me from you. You'll notice that each statement ratchets up her level of commitment. She does more than simply, Naomi, I'm going to stay with you and care for you until you die, and then I'm going to go back home. No, she says, Naomi, I am trading my future for yours. I'm not only going to live with you, but I'm going to die with you, and I'm going to ask them to bury my bones where you are buried. Naomi is speechless by Ruth's extravagant, if not reckless, decision. She doesn't understand it. How do we make sense of Ruth's decision? What in the world motivated Ruth to unite herself to an old widow into a land that she's never known? How do you explain Ruth's decision? 
Should I do anything with the mines? Or? Okay. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Pastoral ministry is never exactly what you expect. You got to learn to roll with the punches. Um, so how do we make sense of Ruth's decision? Why would she trade away her future for Naomi's? You know what I think the reason is? She defined rest differently. For Ruth, true Menaka, the true master key is not found in the arms of a husband having kids or financial security, but rather for Ruth, true rest is found in the arms of her husband, Lord. I don't know if you caught this in her uh, statement, but Ruth says, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. Here, Ruth, she shows her cards, and she reveals that the reason why she's going to go to Bethlehem with her is because because by clinging to Naomi, Ruth is actually clinging to her God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She even uses the Israel word for God, Yahweh, in her vow. And so Ruth believed that her life would only be in tune is if she was with her Lord. So long as she was walking with God, it didn't matter where she lived. It didn't matter what her marital status was. It didn't matter if she was rich or poor. She would be okay. Her life would be on key. Do you believe that, dear friends? How do you define rest? What is Menaka to you? What will enable you to find that sense of well-being and peace? What do you believe will get your soul in tune? Do you identify with Orpah or do you identify with Ruth? Before us are two strategies, two approaches to living. As a pastor of a church in Irvine, many of my members are quite successful in the worldly sense. The majority of our congregation possess not only a bachelor's degree, but master degrees, and we have a lot of uh, doctorates uh, as well. The, the most uh, popular, or not, the profession that we have the most of are physicians, medical doctors. And so for our congregation, money is not a problem. Financial security is not a problem. But as we turn the page from 2016 to 2017, I can just reveal to you that I'm really tired. I'm tired because there's so much drama going on in our congregation. There are so many people, so many lives who are out of sync, so many people who are unhappy, struggling with various things. Why? I feel it's because they've been tuning their lives, their entire lives to a, a, a set, certain tune, a, a certain key that they thought would give them peace but they realize only now that it doesn't. We spend so many of our waking moments trying to achieve what the world says will give us happiness to only discover later on that it actually leaves us empty. 
And so here in our passage, we're reminded of where we find true rest, where the master key really exists. But I would be remiss to simply end my sermon here and leave you guys with the message, be like Ruth and not Orpah. You see, the story of Ruth is more than just a story about picking the right path. If you think about it, Ruth doesn't really choose a path. She doesn't choose a place. Rather, Ruth chooses a person. Ruth chooses the Lord. For Ruth, it was all about following her God because the Lord was her rest. The Lord was her all in all. And isn't that what Christianity is all about? The reason why we're Christians is not because the values of Christianity appeal to us or the teachings of Jesus uh, corresponded with our own morality. No, Christianity is not about a lifestyle or a path, but being a Christian is all about a person. It's about being followers of Jesus Christ, going wherever he goes, going wherever he leads. We follow Jesus because we find in him that which is more beautiful than anything we can find in this world. We follow Jesus because we find in him that which is more satisfying than anything we can find in the world. As Christians, we are so enamored, so stunned by God's amazing beauty and love, there's nowhere else we'd rather be, and so we choose Christ. And we follow him and we obey him. As Christians, we know that to know God is to love God. To know God is to follow God. To know God is to want to obey God. That's how amazing he is. And that's what Ruth invites us to do. She wants us to fall in love with the same God she fell in love with. Now, our passage invites us to do more than just ask us who we identify with between Orpah or Ruth. There's another person that I actually find myself identifying with, and that's Naomi. Why? Well, what is Naomi doing in our passage? She's pretty much giving a case to both of her daughters-in-law why they should not follow her why she's not worthy of their allegiance, why she's not worth sacrificing their future for. In Naomi, we see someone crushed. In Naomi, we see someone without any self-esteem. She actually feels cursed by God and says, I'm not worth it. Go live your lives. Let me be miserable. She's giving reason after reason why they shouldn't follow her. And that resonates with me. It resonates with me because I cannot help but see myself in Naomi in my relationship with God. 
when I look in the mirror, I ask the same questions. I make the same statements. God, what are you still doing loving me? What are you still doing leading me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? I break more commands than I keep them. I'm more selfish than I am selfless. I'm so self-righteous than I'm humble. I live by fear rather than faith. I'm filled with doubts and anxiety instead of trust. I depend on my own strengths rather than on yours. God, what is it that you see in me? Why am I a pastor? Why do I have to preach this morning? There are so many other Christians that are godlier than I am, more faithful than I am. And do you know what he says? Every time I raise these objections, God clings to me. He clings and says, Jeff, I am your God. I will never leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will, I will follow you. I have bound myself to you. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Some of you might be fighting the same battle right now. Some of you may have had very disappointing 2016. And you're saying the same thing. How can God possibly love me? How can he be interested in me? Like Naomi, you give yourself a thousand reasons of why you are not worthy. God, how can you love me? Look at my addictions, the same addictions that I prayed for at the beginning of 2016. I'm still battling one year later. How, God, how can you love me? Look at my hypocrisy. Look at how materialistic I am. Look at how shallow I am. Look at how much of a Sunday Christian I am. Look at how little I pray, how little I read. Look at how I treat my spouse, how I treat my children, how I treat my parents. And so like Naomi, we give God numerous reasons and arguments for him to leave us for him to move on to someone else but with great joy and conviction I say to you today that if you are in Christ I don't care what reason you give for God to leave he will always trump your reasons with the greater reason to stay my son Jesus died for you his blood covers you, and because of your faith in him, I have clung to you, and I will never leave you or forsake you. And so, brothers and sisters, where is our resting place? It's found at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's found in the gospel. Only there is everything right. Only there will our souls find true peace where all the dissonance melts away and we're right where we were meant to be, where all of God's affection and acceptance and approval is found. It's at the cross where we stand righteous and justified. It's at the cross where he calls us by name and calls us sons and daughters. And so as we begin a new year, 
And as we make different goals and plans for ourselves, perhaps little tweaks here and there to improve our lives, can I encourage you to make tweaks and changes that will get your soul more in line with the master key. And that as you learn to rest in God's arms, that you will experience his grace to the full measure where you will hear the music of the gospel and experience the peace that he desires you to possess. May, this be, may he be our north star as we enter the new year. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you how it reveals our foolishness and folly, but it also reveals where we find rest, healing, comfort. We thank you, O Lord, that true rest is found at the foot of the cross, that it is found in you, and that all of our soul's longings are answered and satisfied in you. Lord, would you help us to not only know this, but believe this, and may our life's decisions and actions reflect this. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the-